Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. We are in Raleigh, North Carolina at Quail Ridge Bookstore. And I'm here because this is my daughter's favorite bookstore, and she told me I had to come. I'm here with uh, the novelist Jill McCorkle and Randall Keenan. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, in a big, beautiful store called Quail Ridge. My daughter lives around the corner, and this is her favorite store, and that's why I'm here. My guests today are Jill McCorkle and Randall Keenan. Our host is Sarah Godden, and here's Sarah. Welcome, everybody, to Quail Ridge Books on this very, very special occasion. I'm going to make this really short. There are three people here who are going to be very much more interesting than I am. Uh, joining us tonight in conversation with John Grisham are two wonderful North Carolina writers, Randall Keenan and Jill McCorkle. Randall Keenan hails from Chincapin in Duplin County, is professor of English at UNC Chapel Hill. His published writings include novels, essays, short stories, and a biography. He's won numerous awards for his writing and been a visiting professor at many writing programs across the country, including uh, John and Renee Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi a while back. His most recently published title, uh, just from this past November, is The Carolina Table, North Carolina Writers on Food, which he edited and did the introduction for. Jill McCorkle hails from Lumberton and teaches creative writing at the MFA program at NC State here in Raleigh, as well as being a core faculty member of the Bennington College Writing Seminars. And Jill has also won numerous awards for her published works, which include novels and short stories, not to mention a really eloquent essay in the Carolina Food Book, The Carolina Table, and uh, it has a recipe, pound cake. Um, I didn't know that Crisco came in sticks, but it does. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'm, yeah, I'm going I'm to tell you. Her latest novel is Life After Life. John Grisham, we count as an honorary North Carolina writer who just happened to grow up in Mississippi. We, we are so glad that his daughter, Shay, calls the Raleigh area home, and she convinced him to come to her favorite bookstore. Thank you, Shay. Yeah. As everyone knows, uh, John Grisham's first book, A Time to Kill, was published in 1988 with a print run of 5,000. Since then, he's published 30 novels, six Theodore Boone books for kids, a book of nonfiction, An Innocent Man, and his print runs have increased significantly. <laughs> in addition to writing, he's involved in a number of charitable endeavors, including uh, Rebuild the Coast Fund, which raised over $8 million for Hurricane Katrina relief, and has built six ball fields in Virginia for Little League uh, that has hosted more than 26 Little League teams. Uh, Camino Island is a special treat because it features independent bookstores and a very special independent bookseller, uh, I won't give any spoilers. You just have to find out for yourself. But please join me in giving a warm Raleigh welcome to Randall, Jill, and John. Thank you, Sarah, and thanks to Quail Ridge, and uh, thanks to all of you folks for showing up. We have a big crowd. I've been asked several times, you know, why am I touring after 25 years of not touring? And... Um, just a very good question. I mean, I realized uh, years ago that I didn't have to uh, tour. I've had, I had one national tour in 1992 with the Pelican Brief, 
one of those uh, 35 cities in 33 days kind of, you know, it was no fun. I, so, I, so I'm not going to do that anymore. For many years, I went to the same five bookstores in Mississippi, friends of mine who had helped me with the time to kill. And I would go to their stores and sign lots of books and um, for long hours, and I finally got tired of that. I just got so lazy uh, over the years. I just, you know, I just, I'd rather stay home and write as opposed to, you know, hit the tour and try to be a celebrity. Uh, Stephen King is a buddy of mine. Last year, he, um, he toured for the first time in a long time. He went to 12 or 15 cities, smaller markets, um, and just had a ball. Uh, enjoyed being out, and he told me all about this. And my wife, Renee, said, um, have you thought about touring, you know, to get out of the house for a while? Uh, <laughs> and uh, she loved the idea. And I mean, I, st I stopped working a long time ago, and I've, I've basically been in the house for 27 years. And... It, it really gets old because I'm always, you know, underfoot. Uh, so she loved the idea of me touring. And last week uh, we did a show, a show. I got my own show now. Um, <laughs> Jody Picot was uh, with me in Vermont last week, and she toured Australia for six weeks. And I was not going to tell Renee about that. She would love the idea of me going to Australia for six weeks. So uh, it's an effort to get out. And um, I've had the thought over the years many times when I would see a, a story in a magazine or a travel piece or a newspaper article about a great independent bookstore. And I would say to myself, you know, I need to go there. I should go there and say thanks to the booksellers, meet the fans, sign the books. You know, when you sell a certain number of books, you kind of need to get out and, and tour a little bit. I would have those thoughts, then I would forget about them, and so I never did it. <laughs> so I finally said, okay, I'm going to do it this year, and we had the idea of a podcast that will be broadcast uh, starting uh, later this month, and we hope that turns out uh, well. And so that's that's why I'm here. I'm uh, promoting a book called Camino Island, which is my effort to write a full-length novel with no lawyers in it. And it was, and I almost pulled it off. Uh, I got down to the very last chapter and had to have a couple of lawyers. And so, but they're, they're very minor characters. I got them off the stage real fast. It's a story of. Um, Book selling, rare books, stolen rare books, the people who live in that world, deal in that world, and it's pretty intriguing. It has a lot of um, writing stuff, a lot of publishing stuff, and um, it was a whole lot of fun to write. And uh, Camino Island is a fictitious place in, in Florida with a resort town, a great bookstore, and a cool place to, to set a novel. So uh, I hope you folks enjoy um, Camino Island. I'm uh, delighted to have... Uh, Jill here in Randall, and uh, we'll spend the next uh, few minutes talking about uh, books and writing and all that kind of stuff. My first question for uh, both of you guys, um, Jill, you've taught writing at Carolina, Duke, um, Harvard, Bennington, NC State, Tufts. I just couldn't keep a job. Well... <laughs> Hang on. Let me get my brief here. Randall has taught at um, Columbia, Sarah Lawrence, Duke, UNC, Memphis, Ole Miss, and Nebraska. So the obvious question is, why can't you guys keep a job? <laughs> Randall, explain yourself. Oh. <laughs> 
Just sorry, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite stop other than Ole Miss? Well, well, Ole Miss was was wonderful. Thank you, thank you. Um, I fell in love with Memphis, and that was it was hard to actually leave Memphis. Um, it, it was just that river town, and the people, and the slow rhythm, the ribs, and the ribs. Yeah, the rib, <laughs> I won't lie. The ribs and the blues and, and the blues. Yeah, yeah. How long yeah. were you in Memphis? Uh, four years. And how long have you have you been back at UNC? Thirteen years. Thirteen years. Yeah. Okay. How long have you been at State? Uh, well, I was there eight years, and I I have peeled away a year and a half ago, but I still direct uh, graduate theses for the program. Okay. Do, did you enjoy teaching? Very much. Okay. Yes. So so tell me, describe a typical class to me when you when you're teaching college students how to write. I mean, what the size of the class? Uh, how you go about teaching somebody? Uh, usually a, a workshop is anywhere from ideal would be 12 people, but quite often in state institutions, it's 18 to 20. Um, and I always begin a class with a lot of oral storytelling to break the ice, just to get people telling stories and comfortable with each other, because it really is important in a workshop, I think, that uh, you're willing to go out on a limb and be really vulnerable. Uh, I think it's the only way to learn how to write is to put it out there and um, fail. What do you make them write? Um, well, I teach fiction classes, so I'll, I'll often begin with a character description and um, ask, you know, that they, they not tell us who that person is in real life. Oftentimes people will say, want to say, this is just like so-and-so, and, -so, and um, try to keep it in the fiction for, for fear I'll learn things I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> Randall, how often, do you, how often do you have a student uh, that kind of blows you away with their fiction and you say this, this student has potential, they can, this person can get published? Well, I... To be honest, once in a blue moon, but I have a great deal of um, belief in potential. I think when I was a writing student, I don't think my teachers had that sense about me at all. And so I had to develop. And so I, I'm more interested in how much a student is willing to work, read, revise, and that sort of thing than looking for a, a diamond from the start. Right. There's a great story at Ole Miss before you got there. It goes back probably uh, 30 years now. Willie Morris was the writer in residence, and Willie, Willie never taught anything. I mean, he just didn't believe in going to class. Um, and so they hired Barry Hanna to, to, sort of, to sort of teach a class. It took two of them, uh, because, and, they, and they partied all the time. And they had a student one time that Willie actually read a short story by this student, and he was completely blown away. This is a 20-year-old student. So he, he bumped into Barry, and he said, you got to read this. And Barry read the, the short story, and he couldn't believe it. So they got in their car. They probably stopped at the quick shop and got a six-pack, but they went driving around Oxford trying to track down this student. And they finally found her at the old Holiday Inn bar on the square in Oxford, and they walked up to her, and they said, are you Donna Tart?" Uh -huh. Willie, Willie said, are you Donna Tart?" 
And she said, yeah, I'm Donna Tart." And Willie said, both of us think you're a genius. And they got it right, I guess. She, she's, uh, she's done quite well. Yeah, look where, look where she came. Yeah, I miss Barry a great deal, and he was, he was a, a lot of fun. When we moved there in 1990, Willie was still there, Barry was still there, and uh, Larry Brown had just broken out. And it was not unusual to see those guys at the bookstore, Square Books. We hung out all the time, the great bookstore. And it was a real you know, literary environment, and they're all gone now. That's the sad part. That is very sad. Yeah, from when you were there 20 years ago. Right, yeah. Quite a time. All right, Jill, what are you working on now? Uh, Crisco sticks? No, 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 no. That's the secret ingredient. No, um, I I am finishing a novel. uh, Very, very close to having a draft, so. Okay, you know for you. to knock wood when I said that. Okay, but your last book was a novel. Yes. And that was the first novel in 17 years. Yes. You did like eight or nine collections of short stories, all published by Shannon at Algonquin. Yeah, actually only only uh, three. three. Oh, or by Shannon. <laughs> but Algonquin published. Yes, okay. Algonquin published. So why are you why are you writing novels? You know, I I started out with novels and um but I always really loved the story form and kept going back to it. But um so I so I go back and forth. I mean, I, I I have ideas for stories that I have sort of put on hold. Um, uh, stories are not as as uh, they're not what people want. You know, the the publisher would rather get a novel. So, uh, yeah. So, are is the novel? Is it the same terrain? Is it small town North Carolina? It is. It's small town North Carolina. And my last novel, I had a lot of people. Uh, get very upset with me at the end of it because I I I let a criminal go. You know, I mean, I there, there was this terrible crime and uh, you knew who did it, but um, there was you know, and I thought that was realistic. You know, that it happens all the time, but um, I heard from enough people that in the background you're going to know um, justice will be served. So you actually read your sh- fan, your fan mail. Uh-huh. You read your fan mail? No, well, no, just you know when I was when I was touring with that book, people would say, "Why did you do that? That was a terrible <laughs> thing to do." And I, you know, it, the the first time it happens, you can sort of dismiss it, but about the twelfth time, I was I was feeling pretty guilty that I had that I had not, um, you know, solved what what I had put on the page. So that's kind of in the background, but it's a whole new cast of characters, but. But I, I do like to write about a whole community and a lot of different people and the way their lives intersect. Mm, yeah. So, yes. What are you working on, Randall? Uh, I have a, a, a big novel I'm keep, I keep threatening to let go of. But. Well, you're taking your time. You know, I, you, know, I know you don't get in any hurry. I know. <laughs> What's the novel about? Uh, it's about a kidnapping in Chapel, Chapel Hill. Hill. Yeah. What's the title of it? Uh, there's a man going around taking names. But there was, there was, a, there was a working title. The, the Fire and the Baptism. Okay. And what's the book about? Can you talk about it? Uh, a little bit. But it's about the two, two boys from a very prominent, two prominent families. One's black and one's white in Chapel Hill who are kidnapped by these uh, insurrectionists. And, um, and then what happens to the boys after that? But uh, it's all fiction. Not, all fiction. Not all grounded fiction. in truth. No, no. Uh, and, and what's the small town you're from in North Carolina? Chinkapin. 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 Okay. Is there really a town called 
Keenansville? There is a town called Keenansville. 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 And that's where all the Keenans come from. That's the county seat of Duplin County, yeah. Okay, well, I have to ask this question because when you drive through the campus at UNC, every other building is named after the Keenans. The football stadium is Keenan, the Keenan Flagler Business School. Yes. Is that your bunch of Keenans? Or is it, uh, is there, are, I, are they I related? Could, I could claim them. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a Keenan one time, and he said, well, there are rich Keenans and there are poor Keenans. Mm. But it wouldn't be bad being a poor Keenan, though, I don't think. Well, I, I, get a lot, I got the stories. Are you from the same neck of the woods? I am. Yeah. So, so it's close by? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Okay. And it's a big, thick novel coming out when? Well, I, I, as I said, I've been threatening to let go of it. I promised my agent I'd give it to her this summer. Do you have a contract with a deadline? I did not. I do not. I did. <laughs> I you did don't have deadlines in your contract? I, I, I intentionally decided I didn't want to do that this time. Do you have deadlines? Self-imposed. I, the, the reason it took me so long with my last novel, I'm convinced, is that I, I, I did have a deadline and I accepted money that I had not earned. <laughs> and, and then I had a hard time writing the book. So, so I decided to uh, do the work first this time, and, and it's gone a lot faster. So, it's <laughs> so the pressure's off. You don't feel the, the pressure? The pressure's off, yeah. <laughs> How long have you worked on the novel? Uh, I had it started when I was working on the other one, so probably the idea seven years, but but seriously, the past three years. Okay, so you guys, you both work slow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, are, are we going to compare ourselves? No, no, no. <laughs> no, we all we all have different ways of working. <laughs> A few years ago, I was trying to catch Stephen King. He, you know, he's written like fifty-five books. He was about ten books ahead of me, and um, and he he uh, found out about it that I was trying. Somebody tied, I ran my big mouth, and so he started writing two or three books a year. So we have, and now I'll never catch him. It's not that important. But I'm always working on. Um, well, I've, I've finished the legal thriller. Uh, I start working on a you know a novel every no, every year on January the 1st wow. and I promise it to the publisher around uh, 6 months later and wow. um it comes out in October uh, but these are not these are not big thick novels I don't I don't like big thick novels I'm too lazy to write them and too lazy to read them um I like about 100,000 words you know about 350 pages when it comes out and that's what I that's what I aim for every time but see you guys are writing about the wrong stuff if if you would <laughs> All you got to do is watch lawyers, watch lawyers, lawsuits, courts, trends, firms, litigation, stuff like that. And if you do that, you have to watch it close. Just watch it, watch them in newspapers and the news. Um, the material is endless, uh, really good material because there, a lot of it deals with, um, and here's the good part. If you write about lawyers, um, the ones who are in prison will send you letters and <laughs> Well, every law, every lawyer in prison is a great story. I mean, it's it's, it's a fantastic story, and I've actually been to uh, prisons before. Um, I, I wrote a book one time called "The Brethren." It's about three judges in prison, and uh, so I wanted to go to a federal pen, a minimum security, to to chat with some judges who were serving time, and I got permission through the uh, Bureau of Prisons in 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 Washington to go to a prison down in. Um, Florida. And so I call the uh, warden 
And I said, uh, do you have any judges uh, behind bar? <laughs> and he thought for a second, and he said, uh, no, we don't have any judges. And I said, do you have any lawyers? He said, oh, we always got lawyers. Well, <laughs> And so I went and talked to, interviewed three lawyers, uh, and it was, you know, it was fascinating. Every story was compelling, every story. And lawyers are really good uh, storytellers by nature. And, and most of them are pretty good writers because they have to write so much. The problem they have, though, uh, virtually, <laughs> virtually all of them, is they get really bogged down. Is that a, you use that word, bogged? We say it, we say it in Mississippi. Bogged down in the, in the, um, Legal research, the, the technical language, they want to show you how much they know. And so most of the stories don't go anywhere. Um, but the research, uh, that kind of research is fun. Uh, I've been to, um, the research has taken me to, taken me to um, death row in a number of states, which is, you know, it's not, it's not fun to go there, but it's, it is, it's fascinating. A lot of prisons. Um, I wrote a book called Gray Mountain a few years ago, and I went to Appalachia, to the coal country. Um, I've been to a lot of, you know, courtrooms, lawyers' office, judges' chambers. Uh, the research is always fascinating. The legal research is, um, is I, I learned to hate that in law school. And, uh, and for 10 years as a lawyer, I tried to avoid research at every corner, and I did a pretty good job of it. Uh, now when I, when I have to know something technical about the law, we live in, in Charlottesville. UVA's there. They have a top 10 law school, and they have these really bright kids who come to town. And I, I uh, always hire one of them, you know, to, uh, to I give them a list of things to research. And they email me these beautiful memos back. Uh, and I just take the memos and just put them in the novel. And, <laughs> and people think I'm a genius, you know, because I know. How does he know all this law? How can he remember all this stuff? What is he? I, don't, I just I didn't even read it. I just put it in the novel. Uh, that's how I deal with research. Um, some of the research, well, it's, it's taken me to, to foreign countries. I wrote two books in uh, Italy. Uh, one was in Bologna, the broker that could have been set anywhere in the world. And I thought, well, if I'm, if I'm going to have to go there, uh, I might as well go somewhere. I, have, I haven't been in Italy uh, with great food and great wine. And it was really heavy lifting uh, researching in Bologna. <laughs> Once I got there, um, I was—I uh, always get a car and a driver to show me around, an English-speaking driver, and and so I, I came out of the hotel and there was my car and there was my driver, big big guy, and we got in the car. His name is Luca, and I said uh, we got in the car and I said, Luca, you, your English is pretty good. Uh, where'd you learn English? Yeah, where he said he said I play center, and I said uh, okay. I don't know soccer. I thought that maybe center was a position in soccer. And I said, okay, I don't understand. He said, he said, the quarterback is always an American, and I'm the center, so you have to speak English. And I said, well, where are we? <laughs> there's Italian football. There's, there's, there's Italian football league, and it's a bunch of big, tough Italian guys who like to get all dressed up and just beat the crap at each other every Saturday <laughs> afternoon, you know, like, like American football. Uh, and so I, that took me to the world of, uh, you know, Italian football in the town of Parma, which is also it's down the road from Bologna. And, um, and, and so I spent, you know, a couple of weeks there doing research and gained 15 pounds. Okay, <laughs> I'm doing all the talking. How do you do your research? Um, often it, it's what comes up in the story. I've, I've done more research 
uh, for the book I'm working on now than I than I really have in a long while. There was a a big train wreck that happened in uh, Robinson County in 1943 that my dad would refer to often. And uh, my dad died, you know, 25 years ago. And and but but I had these vivid memories of the telling of this this train wreck. Many soldiers going home, many people from the north. But it was freak. It had snowed in Robinson County, which was rare. And then there was just a derailed train up ahead. So there was this crash that. Um, kept a lot of people in the area because they couldn't leave. They were injured, um, quite a few fatalities. It just engaged that whole part of the state. And yet if you go and you park and you walk the quarter mile up the train track, there's absolutely no indication that it ever happened. You know, so um, so so that's the kind of history I'm I'm often interested in going back and and claiming. And so there's there's not a whole lot about it. So I had to sort of go back into newspaper archives, oh, and it's it's been wonderful. I've really loved it. Yeah. Your research, Randall. Do you bother with it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually do. Some, some writers don't. I know, I know, I know. I probably shouldn't. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm a history buff, so a lot of things I write are historically based, and so a lot of those history books, and also newspaper, old newspapers and magazines. I'm writing a lot about Chapel Hill in the '60s and 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 '50s, and so just looking at that landscape. I mean, there's a, there's a beloved place that I think a lot of people know of as the Pit, uh, and I didn't realize that in the mid late '60s that was a field, and they 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 built a building and they left a big hole. And they had, and they decided to make an outdoor patio. Is that on so, campus? Yeah, by the student right, union. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. yeah, right yeah. by the student union. Yeah. Exactly by the student union. So learning little things like that are really fun. And, and there's a beloved defunct restaurant called Rathskellers. Oh yes. And Rathskellers. Rathskeller, the rat. The rat. The rat. It's a restaurant. It was a restaurant. It was in this little. No alley. wonder it went broke. <laughs> but Rathskeller. It, it was beloved, but in learning the history of it. I learned that the owner was very dedicated to hiring black uh, men to work as his rest- as, as his servers and, and cooks. And it was one of the few places that were integrated on the main drag of, of Chapel Hill. What's the famous restaurant in Chapel Hill over on Rosemary that's uh, been owned by uh, the same black lady for many years? Oh, Mama, Mama Dips. Mama, Mama Dips. Mama Dips. Yeah, our daughter took us there uh, to – our daughter went to UNC. And so we, we spent a lot of time down – in Chapel Hill, uh, when she was in school, mm-hmm. and then when she graduated, um, my wife, who's from Raleigh, boy, she's born in Raleigh. Uh, she grew up in Mississippi, and uh, she decided to finish her degree at Chapel Hill, not in UVA where we live. And for, <laughs> and for, oh no, she wouldn't dare go to UVA. Um, she's a Tar Heel, and so for two years she commuted from Charlottesville to to Chapel Hill. Um, and finished her degree in 2010, two years after our daughter. So my wife's right here. So, well, and then my daughter, my daughter married a Tar Heel, uh, who stood right here. Tar Heels everywhere. And 15 months ago, they had little Oliver, who probably will be a Tar Heel. I can't see, I can't see him going anywhere else. Can you? So, so I do have some uh, deep ties here. I married into it. A lot of Renee's family is uh, from around here. Her, her her father's family 
is from Clayton, North Carolina. And her uh, grandfather, Silas Jones, worked on the campus of NC State as a carpenter for how many years? A long time. A long time. And uh, you got cousins all around the area. So we do have some pretty strong Carolina connections. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. He began by talking about daughters and how special they are, how they are different from little boys and need special protection. He told them of his own daughter and the special bond that exists between father and daughter, a bond that could not be explained and should not be tampered with. If that story from John Grisham's A Time to Kill made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. So at this time, we'll uh, take questions from you and see what you want to talk about. What am I reading? When I'm writing, I tend to read a lot of nonfiction that's related to the subject matter that I'm writing about. It's not always pleasant reading. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, uh, wrongful convictions, um, stuff dealing with the law. Uh, my, the book I'm just finishing now for the fall is about the issue of student debt, and especially in, within the context of student debt and for-profit law schools. About a year ago, there was a an article, I think, in the Atlantic Monthly called The Great Law School Scam. And it's about that very thing, student debt and, and people making profits, all that, who own the law schools. And so I read that. I've read other books about it and, and been tuned into that for the past year or so. I try not to read a lot of fiction when I write because, you know, we all want to read, we all want to read great writers. And when I'm, when I'm writing and also reading a really good book, Invariably, I catch myself doing things I wouldn't normally do, not not imitating, but just picking up little habits that just that are not me. So I try to. St- I don't read bad fiction. Um, <laughs> I guess I do read some bad fiction. Uh, there, there's a scene in uh, Camino Island. Camino Island is a conversation about you know reading books, um, and and the, our hero says, "I give a book fifty pages." And if it's, if, it's, if it's no fun after 50 pages, you know, I'm, I'm going to put it down. There are too many other books I want to read to waste all that time. Well, and his, the lady he's talking to says, oh, no, I'm going to read the whole book. If I start a book, I'm going to finish a book, okay? Let's have a show of hands. If you start a book, are you going to finish it? Okay, all right. I count all those. Okay. <laughs> and if, all right, show of hands. If you, if you don't like a book, you're going to put it down and pick up something else. It's, um, Maybe slightly more are going to put it down and not – okay. But a lot of folks are going to finish the book, including my wife. And so we, we have these uh, – not fights. We have these discussions all the time about why are you reading a book you don't like? You know, why are you doing that? And she's doing it right now. She's reading a book she doesn't like. We won't put it down. No, no, we're, we're, no don't tell me the title. Uh, I read a great nonfiction book uh, a few months ago called by David Grant called Killers of the Flower Moon. He wrote The Lost City of Z a few years back. Really, really good writer. Uh, that was just a captivating story. Uh, nonfiction, a book called Rogue Heroes, the last fall. It was really good. Uh, those two come to mind. What are you reading? Well, when I'm working on a novel, I, I kind of stay away from novels. But I, I do enjoy reading stories and poems. So um, on my table, Marie Howe's latest book. And um, 
Richard Bausch's The Weather of the World stories and uh, Robert Pensky's most recent poems. Randall? I am reading um, the latest book by John T. Edge called The Pot Liquor Papers, which is like a secret history of the South through food and and the culture of, of the South and all these wonderful characters. And I bet, does anyone in here know that Mahalia, Mahalia Jackson once had a fried chicken chain? No. See? <laughs> what is your interest in food? I mean, you... you, you I you, like to eat. Well... <laughs> Okay, Randall, beyond that, <laughs> you've written about it, you study it. I mean, what's, what, what does that come from? Well, it has always been integral. I mean, every, all of my, so, much, so many of my first stories, um, food worked in there some way. Um, and, and, and it's a great way, I think, to discover character. And when you're writing nonfiction, too, I mean, I think what people eat. You know, tells you a lot about them, what they like, uh, and it's a great way to again to get to character, and and again something like what John T is doing, uh, the history of people of a region through the food is fascinating to me. And you were raised by your grandparents, right? My great aunt. Okay, because she cooked. Was she a great? Oh, cook? oh, oh, man! What you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was wonderful. She was really good. Yes, yes. And do you cook? I was spoiled. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot from her and, and try to learn. What were her favorite? What were the dishes you, you remember? From her favorite dishes? Oh my goodness! Uh, she 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 was a great baker. So the cakes I remember first off, and and then the, the, some of the standards fried chicken. Um, she was a great gardener too. So I you know. People talk about sustainability, farm to fork, farm to fork, farm to fork. Sorry, right, right? And all that. I mean, so I grew up with that. So we all the fresh vegetables you wanted yeah. were there. Yeah. Now, see, that's a pretty good answer to your question. Well, all three of us weighed in on that one. So, uh, give us your best question. Yes, ma'am. What's the future of the book, and how do we reach out to the millennials and younger people who are showing less and less interest in books? Jill, you take that one. <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't think that I don't think that um, the book is going anywhere because of what I I hope they'll come up with you buy the book and you also get the downloaded version together because I can't tell you how many times I download it because I don't want to carry the heavy book. Um, I just I, your your new one is on my iPad, but I want the book. Well, please so, buy, please buy yeah, both of them. Yeah, so uh, so I, I there's do, also a large print edition if you like that. There's a there's a there's a book need, on tape. There's a book on it, tape. Yeah, but I could do the book on yeah, tape. audio book. Yeah. But um, no, so so I I don't think anything for me is ever going to replace the book. I mean, and I I really you know a lot of times I really want to keep it pristine and then um I end up doing those itty bitty dog ears on pages and uh and uh, I just go back again and again and it's just much easier to hold it. I don't think you can replace that. So hopefully um millennials are are having that same experience I hope with pen and paper it's still the cheapest hobby in the world, you know, uh, to be a writer with pen and paper. So, so Randall, where's the book going to be in 20 years? Boy, um, I, as you both know, there was so much anxiety about 10, 15 years ago in New York 
every, I mean, everybody just thought that the ebooks were always take over. anxious. Well, yeah, the yeah. <laughs> they're always edgy up there. Yeah, but recently, apparently, the trend has reversed, mm. and the, the the hard book, uh, paperback or whatever, uh, paper is is going to stay around. And I remember before all this sort of took off, uh, Bill Gates said very definitively that this is, this is superior technology, the book. You don't need to plug it in. You can take it anywhere. All you need is light to read and the ability to read. And I, this is anecdotal, but um, my, most of most millennials I know prefer books. My students, uh, you know, I, I assume that they read eBooks, but no, they they want the, the the hardcover. They want the book to read in their hands. And look at this bookstore. I mean, this is uh, the this store is thirty three years old. This is a third major location, right? In thirty three years, it's over nine thousand square feet. It's a beautiful store. Uh, and you know it's it's packed now. It's been busy, I guess, since since you opened here a year ago. Um, in some areas, independent bookstores are thriving. Uh, in some areas, they're they're still struggling. Uh, but the book is not going to go away because we you know we too many people love books uh, to 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 see it go away. Yes, ma'am, right here. Why the question is why did I focus on uh, the manuscripts of F. F. Scott Fitzgerald? I say Fitzgerald. And the New York Times lady admonished me because it's supposed to be Fitzgerald, right? It's Fitzgerald. <laughs> well, down south, it's Fitzgerald, okay? I mean, it's it's going to remain Fitzgerald. Uh, um, well, okay, very simple. Uh, the I, I enjoy collecting uh, first editions, modern 20th century first editions from Faulkner, Hemingway, Steinbeck, Fitzgerald and uh, and a few a few others, even you know Mark Twain, uh, a little older than that. And uh, I've been doing that for about twenty five years. And oftentimes for birthdays or for Christmas, that's my gift from my wife is a is a first edition. If we if we can find one, they're pretty hard to find. Uh, so I, I know a little bit about that world. I don't study it. I don't spend a lot of time there. But I, I am fascinated by rare books. Of those four great American writers, uh, Hemingway's stuff is scattered. It's not in one place. Uh, Steinbeck's stuff is scattered. It's not in one place. In fact, the University of Virginia has the uh, first draft of the Grapes of Wrath uh, purchased from a relative of Steinbeck's many years ago. So his stuff is all over the place. UVA also has uh, all of Faulkner's manuscripts. They should be at Ole Miss, but they're not. In Virginia, it's a, it's a sore point, but um, <laughs> long story behind that one. But the UVA has them, very proud of them, take care of them. I've actually seen them. Renee and I went to see them one time. And they're, they're in a vault, in the basement, where everything is controlled, heat, light, air. Faulkner was very fastidious about his manuscripts. They're very neat, and they're, they're fun to watch. But there, there are 40 of them. He wrote 35, 40 books. It'd be hard to steal all those. Fitzgerald wrote five novels. Tons of short stories, but only five, really four, because his last book, The Last Tycoon, was not finished when he died at the age of 44. And they're all in one place. They're at Princeton in the Firestone Library. In 1950, his only child, Scotty, gave all of Daddy's papers to Princeton, where he had studied, and that's where they are. And so to make the theft believable, it's, the first chapter is the theft of these rare manuscripts from the, the vault at Princeton. I never saw the vault. I've never seen the library, and I stayed away from it uh, doing the research. That's how I do my research. I stay away. I just, uh, <laughs> I just fictionalize stuff, okay? Make it all up. The reason I picked Fitzgerald, 
Fitzgerald's because they're because they're only five manuscripts and it'd be easier to steal. And to Princeton, a very wealthy university with a huge endowment, um, they're priceless, and that's a, that's a big part of the plot. Is once they are gone, the whole rare book world just kind of starts listening to see when they're going to pop up. Are they going to be sold off piecemeal? Are they going to be ransomed back to Princeton? That's what happens most of the time when art and manuscripts and artifacts are stolen. They'll give you a chance to, to pay the ransom and get it back. And Princeton would pay anything to get these back. Uh, that doesn't happen initially. But the, the, the rare book world starts listing. The FBI has a rare asset recovery team that's very good. And so they, they're listing in all the right places, and that's how the story actually begins. So if, I know you're hooked now. If you haven't bought the book, <laughs> that's all I'm going to tell you. Yes, ma'am. Where did Theo come from? Theodore, okay. Uh, Theodore Boone uh, was sort of hatched um, seven or eight years ago when my daughter was teaching uh, at Combs Elementary here in, in uh, Raleigh. She had a bunch of fifth graders, right, her first class, and she was really, really pushing reading. Uh, and she was home one weekend, and we were having dinner, and she said, she said Dad, could you write suspense for kids? Uh, they, they have tons of kids' books, but it's, you know, it's just historical fiction or fantasy. Or, uh, she said, I can't find any good suspense, and I was intrigued by that. And so I, you know, thought about it and came up with the, the idea of sort of a legal twist on that. Theodore Boone's a 13-year-old kid who's only child. Both parents are lawyers, and he thinks he's a lawyer. And, <laughs> and he's always giving advice to his friends, and everybody stays in trouble. And that's kind of the, the setting for, for Theodore Boone. I've done six of them, and uh, I plan to write the seventh one this fall and release next spring, probably every other year. After six of them, I'm starting to wonder how long I can sustain it. Um, I was also motivated by greed because when, uh, when Shay started teaching, Renee and I uh, bought uh, all the Hardy Boys mystery books and Nancy Drew. And when I saw there were 84 Hardy Boys books, I thought, hmm, this might be a good series, you know. <laughs> this might work. Another way to sell books. Um, I can't do 84. I'm not sure I can make it to 10. What was the second part of the question? Oh, did I take writing classes? Uh, no. I, I was a, a big reader. Uh, my mom did not believe in television much. Um, we always had tons of library books in the house. Big family. We're always reading. I never, I never, it was not a childhood dream. I didn't study it in college. I studied accounting in college and I went to law school to be a tax lawyer. Uh, so uh, it, it came later in life. Um, and I was inspired by something I, I saw in a courtroom one day to create this story that eventually became a time to kill. Uh, but I was, I was, again, it came, came later in life. How about you? Did you dream of being a writer? Well, I, I didn't dream of being a writer because I, I, I think I thought you were going to grow up and hate what you did. And all the writers I had heard of at, when I was a kid were dead, so you're not going <laughs> to aspire to that. Um, so, so, you know, I wrote, I wrote as a child, and I loved it, and it was kind of self-entertainment. Um, just, you know, I, and I did it, I mean, always, the same way, I, you know, I like to sit and draw or something. And, and so I took a class as a sophomore in college, and 
you know, was kind of surprised to find we had some of the same teachers, uh, Randall and I, you know, and so here are these uh, reasonably well-respected humans of the community, you know, whose whole lives are about reading and writing and um, studying literature, and and I was hooked. I was hooked then and um, never looked back. But I, I don't think growing up I thought of it as as something I could seriously pursue. How about you, Randall? When did you get the bug to write for a living? Well, I, I again, I, it wasn't it didn't seem practical, and I was interested in science and science fiction. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, my physics advisor, because I was going to be a physics major, he, he gave me a look one day and said, I think what you really want to do is be, write science fiction. So I took a class with one of our, our, fellow, our te- mutual teachers, Max Steele, and he kind of drummed that out of me. <laughs> the idea of, I mean, I still love science fiction, but he said I should be writing about so he He directed me to write about something else, and it kind of took hold. What was the first thing you got published? Uh, it was A Visitation of Spirits, my first novel. No, no, no short story, no magazine article? No, uh, no. It was that. Yeah. How old were you when uh, Visitation was published? 25. 25. Yeah. What, was you, what was the first thing you sold? I sold a short story to Seventeen magazine. <laughs> <laughs> what was the opening sentence? Oh, gosh. It, it was, you know, my, my, I don't remember. I don't remember. The title of the story was... Miss Leela's fig tree, and they changed it to something like her beautiful garden, and, <laughs> and and it had this watercolory thing, you know. But how much did they pay you? Not much. <laughs> um, so how old were you? I, I was um, twenty twenty five. Yeah, I was twenty five. And the first novel was the next year. Yeah. And that was that was Algonquin. That was Algonquin. Okay. And and actually, I have to since we're here at Quail Ridge. Yeah, well, I was waiting for the story to come out. I, well, I I love uh. tell. Okay, so I went to the first SEBA. Algonquin was just getting started, and Nancy Olson was just about to open Quail Ridge. And I go to SEBA, and uh, Lewis Rubin, who had started Algonquin couldn't even afford a booth. So he set up a card table outside the main hall and told me he wanted me to get dressed up and stand by the table. And he put my books on it and had a big sign, you know, so it was really awkward. And uh, and and so I'm looking for somebody to talk to, and this really friendly woman sort of finds me, you know. Um, and we, we have a wonderful conversation, and she said, I'm about to open a bookstore in Raleigh. And, and I've heard of people doing signings. Uh, if I decide to have a signing, will you come? And I'm like, well, sure, I've never done a signing, but sure. And so Nancy scheduled my signing. It was during the State Carolina football game <laughs> on, a, on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and, and I showed up, and Nancy and I sat together, the two of us, for about an hour, and she always swore that after I left, a carload of people from Lumberton showed up. But I always thought that was Nancy's way of making me feel better. <laughs> but so Quail Ridge um, has come a long way in those in those thirty plus years. So since we're telling uh, bad signing stories, 
uh, because there are a couple of them in Camino Island. I'm, I keep coming back to Camino Island, pushing the book. Um, <laughs> what's your worst story, Randall? It would have to be in Charlottesville. I was I was on a, a book tour, and it was uh, a, a, a now defunct chain that will go unmentioned. And they had, and it was a, one of those covered malls with the long, wa- yeah. And they put me at a table out in the middle of traffic. <laughs> And it was the most embarrassing thing I'd ever done. Because nobody knew who the hell I was. <laughs> and nobody wanted to stop and talk to me. And, and I got a, a little, re- re- not revenge, but a few years later, they did the same thing to Norman Mailer in the same mall. <laughs> and it, they wrote this hilarious story about how awkward it was to have Norman Mailers out in front of this story. Right, right. <laughs> it, it was a Walden book, you can say that. Because... I- <laughs> I, hey, I've been there. That, you, they did it to you. No, I, I didn't sign there. But I, but after a Time to Kill came out, I mean, I, I I toured. I made my own tour with the Time to Kill, going to libraries and such, just trying to make stuff happen. And I had a couple of uh, goose eggs with a Time to Kill. So I, I've been there. I've, and it's so awful because when you go into a bookstore for a signing, the staff they can't wait to meet you because you know they have the author in town. And you're thinking, how many of these people work here and how many of them might be customers? And you find out at the, at the appointed hour that they all work there. And <laughs> they, they want to get to know you. You know, hey, and they're looking around nervous, too. You know, maybe somebody will show up. And then at 4 o'clock when the signing starts, they have a way of just absolutely vanishing back into the stacks and between the, you know, hiding between the books. There's nobody, and you're sitting at the table all by yourself with a big stack of your books, and it's the longest two hours you can possibly uh, possibly imagine. Um, but anyway, I, f- I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, we were just telling bad, bad, bad signings. Bad signing stories. So I, 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 did, I, did have some, um, I did have some goose eggs. I had one guy one time show up with a time to kill and talk to me for a long time, and I realized he was reading the first chapter. <laughs> and when he got finished, he slammed the book shut and laid it down and walked off. He didn't like the first chapter, so. My, my, favorite, my favorite is when somebody looks, sees your picture, back. is this you? And, and you say, yes. And so did you write this? Yes. And then they say, is it good? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we could tell these stories. What's your craziest uh, experience in a signing where you had a crowd? What's the craziest thing you've ever been asked to sign? Oh. <laughs> Randall, you take that one. <laughs> been asked to sign anything okay. unusual. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had signed a, uh, had a baby one time, and the baby... Uh, well, the year before, I'm, I'm, I'm at a bookstore in Jackson, Mississippi, and there's a long line, and it's a hot day, and they, they come running up. They said, there's a lady at the back of the line who's about to go into labor. She, I mean, show her, she's in labor, okay? She's very pregnant. Will you, would you mind coming out and signing the book for her so she can't <laughs> climb the stairs? So I took a break, and I really wanted to get out of the store anyway for a few minutes. Ran outside, and there, sure enough, she's, she's in labor. And, 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 and so I signed her book real quick. Well, the, the next year, she brought the kid back. And he had kill, oh, kills a year old, and she wanted me to sign the kid's diaper. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure it was clean. Uh, so that's the only diaper I've ever signed. Wow. Okay, moving on. <laughs> yes, ma'am. What's the hardest book 
uh, of my books for me to write and my favorite. Well, my favorite is um, probably A Time to Kill, just because it's set for sentimental reasons. And it was uh, pretty autobiographical at that time when I was, you know, I was kind of living that life of Jake as, as I was writing that book. Um, you know, with time, I can look back and, and say, yeah, I like, I like that book more or maybe not that one. You have to love them to finish them. <laughs> you, have to, you really have to love them to get, to get them, you know, to the publisher. Um, uh, the most difficult book was probably uh, The Chamber. Because I was, uh, it's, you know, it's a very heavy, dark book, and I was spending several visits to the death row at Parchman Prison in Mississippi, which was not always uh, pleasant. And the book dragged on and on. I just couldn't get him to the gas chamber. I was trying because I wanted to be done with him. Um, <laughs> sometimes you just got to kill these people off, you know, and uh, and you can't, uh, you can't, you can't always, you know, you can't just get there when you want to get there. So. I'd say the chamber was probably the most the most difficult. You, your favorite? Not of mine, of yours. <laughs> you know, I I always feel like the one the one I'm working on is is the favorite. Um, maybe I have to say that to to stay with it. But um, I I would say toward the the past. Three, I feel that way, and I think it's because of structurally, it's it's what I had been trying to do, and so I just I feel closest to it. Um, and the hardest was probably the one that you know took sixteen years because it was one of those ideas that I mean the idea was abstract. I was kind of I had an idea without a plot, and um, so it felt like I was working in reverse, and uh, it just took a while to figure it out. What's your favorite? I can't cheat and say The Client, can I? No, you can't say that. <laughs> it's got to be your book. Um, well, a, a book, I, uh, a nonfiction book I did um, that I finished up, actually, while I was at Ole Miss, uh, Walking on Water, because I traveled all around North America talking to people, meeting people, writing up their stories, uh, and pondering ideas, and it you know, kind of changed the path of my life in many ways, I feel. So. Was it was it difficult or was it uh, is that the, is your it favorite? It was one? one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> you spent a lot of time in the Delta too, right? I did, I did. Yeah. Okay. Um, over here, questions is about the movies and uh, how involved I get with the movies. Um, I've had nine of my books adapted, and every one has been a different experience. Um, it's very difficult to make uh, movies these days. Uh, it's just we I haven't had a movie in probably. 12 to 15 years, and, and all the books are for sale. I mean, I'd, I would love to see a, a, a good movie made from all my books. We, we all would because we all love good movies. Um, the, the different times I've had the ability to uh, approve the screenwriter, approve the director. Uh, I, I won't sell the film rights now to a book unless I know who the director is supposed to be, uh, who the screenwriter is supposed to be, and sometimes... Um, an actor or two, or I'll have the right to veto the casting of the top three actors, something like that. Every deal is a little bit different. The problem is the, the, more, the more books I sell, the more clout I have or I can get. Well, that necessarily sort of sucks me into the process of making movies, and I don't want to do that. I don't know how to make movies. I don't know how to write screenplays. I've proven that on at least four occasions. Um, <laughs> It's just not something I want to do. And, and I've learned a few years ago that there's nothing I can do with Camino Island. 
if I gave the film rights to a Hollywood studio or production company for free, which I'm not going to do, uh, and if I wrote the screenplay, just gave it to them, you know, I, I adapted my own, it would not speed up the making of the movie one bit. So I can't control it. I can't make movies happen. So I've stopped worrying about them. You know, I just hope that maybe uh, somebody will come along and, and want to make a film. But it's very difficult. And look at what they make nowadays. I mean, they, they'd rather spend the money on, you know, Spider-Man 4 than, uh, than a good adult drama. There's so few good adult dramas that come out these days. So it's frustrating. But, I, you know, again, I, I, I can't worry about that too much. I got too many books to write. Yes, ma'am. A book about the for-profit prison industry. Uh, yes. I've thought about that book a lot. And... Um, uh, I've collected a lot of articles. I've got I've got probably half a dozen books on that topic already. Uh, so that's on the list. Yeah. All right, one more question right over here. The question is, how did I balance my time? How, how did I write the first two books when I was practicing law? Uh, I was also in the state legislature in Mississippi. That took about a third of my time, uh, and they paid us eight thousand dollars a year, whether we needed it or not. That's that was a salary. Um, Renee was having babies, the family was, I was three hours away from home, and so life was pretty crazy. And I, I had no, and, and the law office never made a lot of money, uh, but it was pretty busy at times. Um, I got into this routine of getting up at five in the morning and going to the office, and I, I, I would set the clock for five, and I would make myself be at the office with the first cup of coffee and write the first word at 5.30. And I did that for pretty much for five years and wrote a time to kill took three years. Uh, the firm took two right behind it. And uh, it was just a matter of making myself do that. And I, I tell, um, as you'll learn when you read Camino Island, uh, there's some tips for writing uh, in there. And one of them is, you know, you have to write it at least a page a day. If you're not writing a page a day, uh, you're not going to produce anything and write that one page, at least one page. At the same time, same place, wherever. Find your little you know, lunch break, midnight, whatever, whatever suits you, and make yourself do it every day. And that's now, I mean, I don't do that now. Um, I closed my law office. Uh, they called me one day and said, hey, we just sold the film rights to the firm to Paramount Pictures for a whole lot of money. And I got up and walked out of my office and didn't even turn off the lights, okay? <laughs> I was done with practicing law. <laughs> How did you write your first book with a real job? I, I did something very similar. I got up really, really early because I was working full-time as a secretary um, and had to be at work at 8.30. So I would get up at 5 and write for a couple hours because the other end of the day, I just, nothing was going to happen. Um, and I love to get up early, and I still, that would that's my favorite time to to work. What's your schedule, Randall? I would... Um work after work i would i would go get something to eat after you know business hours come back to my desk and and type at the same typewriter i'd been typing that all day um you know i mean when things sort of pick up and I'm, i would i would write on subways because i i would write longhand and these were the days of walkmans yeah. <laughs> and so i would have a cassette tape plug myself in and i lived in brooklyn i worked on the upper well midtown and so that was a, for me it was a good time to sort of Scribble away. You used a real typewriter? Well, this was, oh, yes. this was in the days. But yeah, I used a real typewriter. I would write it out longhand and then type it up. How do you work? 
I still do a lot longhand. Um, I work on a computer now, but it's a glorified typewriter. Um, <laughs> and when I was writing my first books, I was I was working as a secretary in the med school over at UNC. And um, now I think all these years I've never I never wanted to tell it because I don't I guess I thought well, they you would fire tell, me. You got to tell it now. Yeah, okay. but but I did. I wrote so much of my novels while I was at work because <laughs> because I realized you know there there was like no reward for like being a really fast secretary, and and so if I did all my work real fast, they would just give me a whole lot more work, and so I would. I would pace it out, so I got the day's work done, but I was typing, and and I would usually name my files some kind of disease, and and then if somebody came up behind me, I would just zoom, you know. So I would, like, have all these words like hemorrhage, you know, and up at the top, and um, so I, I wrote much of much of a novel there and said so I was always afraid I'd get fired or I don't know what would they take from me now but so the truth finally comes out after yeah, all the these years alright we're out of time thanks to um, Jill and Randall and thanks to uh, Quail Ridge and this beautiful store thanks to all you folks for coming and we'll see you down the road thank you thanks to my guests Jill McCorkle and Randall Keenan, and to the staff here at Quail Ridge, and the volunteers, and all the loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.